in those days. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. It could be just that the story of the temptation is too short in Mark, so the lectionary thought it needed to be longer. So tack a little bit on the front. But I think there's a lot more going on here. One of the interesting things in the Mark story of the baptism is the idea, and it's not in any of the other Gospels, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism, it's clearly really important. But in Mark, the heavens are torn apart, or ripped open, they're different translations. It's a really violent kind of event, isn't it? It's a really violent kind of activity. Why are the heavens torn apart? Why is Jesus driven by the Spirit out into the desert? Why does Jesus begin his ministry after John was arrested? Whatever else is going on, this gospel begins in violence. This is not going to be an easy story. The new world of God that Jesus proclaims, the kingdom of God, if it's going to arrive at all, it's not going to be an easy arrival. It's not going to be without struggle and pain. And that's how the rest of the gospel goes. The disciples struggle all the way through. They struggle in all the gospels, but particularly in Mark's gospel. They're clueless so much of the time. Unlike us, of course, who know everything that's going on all the time. We're, we're all the same, aren't we? That Life is a real struggle with only the small amount of information when you need more and not the right amount of information at the right time to make good decisions. We're doing the best we can, but it's a struggle. Not only the disciples, but of course Jesus suffers in the end. And we're left unsure in the Gospel of Mark. Read the end of it again if, for, for yourself what happens. It's full of uncertainty. So what does it mean that we've got the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus at the beginning of Lent? Well, we get baptised because Jesus was baptised and in most denominations, if you're not Salvation Army and they've got very good reasons why they don't baptise people, which we won't go into, but are very interesting. Everyone else will baptise people. We baptise you as a baby in some churches, we'll baptise you as an adult in others, and in the Uniting Church we'll baptise anyone at any age. 
But what does it mean? It must be more to it than just, well, Jesus did it, so we must do it. Baptism is a, a metaphor for death and rebirth. It's so obvious, isn't it? You go down into the water, into death, and you come up into new life. That's the whole point of it. Birth is full of possibilities, but full of terrible danger too. Terrible danger, even now, for mother and child. But in previous times, there have been times in history where 50% and not much less than that of births didn't make it into the second year. Either the mother or the child or both perished. It's a terribly difficult time. That's why Jesus is baptised by John. All of the Gospels have Jesus not baptising himself, which would have been the norm for the day. Baptism was not an unknown thing. But Jesus didn't baptise himself. He was baptised by somebody. The story we are to take from that, at least one of them, is that you can't birth yourself. You needed at least a mother. And I paid attention into those lessons in school. I remember that, but you need at least a mother. And somewhere along the line you needed a father, but that's a different part of the story. But you couldn't do it by yourself. And often, mother and child can't do it by themselves either. It's a process where you came into being because of the work, effort and pain of someone else, about which I've, I can only be a witness. I've never experienced it, of course. To come into new life requires help. It requires preparation. You can't do it yourself. And it's not just birth. We, we have all the mammals on the planet need the most nurture to survive to the point where we can look after ourselves. So other creatures, some creatures that are born by egg, their parents have gone when they hatch and they're on their own from the beginning. Everything they need, they've either got or they, they won't have. Mammals need training and we more than any. So we could look at the temptation. Jesus, immediately after the baptism in Mark, is driven out into the desert by Satan. No, sorry, by the Spirit to meet with Satan. We can see that as preparation, as the preparing, which is why Lent is such an important time. It's a time of preparation, of preparing. It's like a, a gestation period. It's like the moment of working through what's possible, what could be learned. It's a transition between the old and the new. It's a period of time to be prepared. And 40 is a significant number. All the way through, not only the scriptures, but, but certainly the scriptures, Moses spent 40 days with God on the mountain of Sinai. Noah spent 40 days in the rain. The children of Israel, in all their travails, spent 40 years. 40 is the important number. Even the Buddha and, and Muhammad both began their teaching career at the age of 40, the traditions tell us. There's something about that period, and that's just become the number. 40 is the number that reminds us of the need for, for preparation and for testing. And preparation is often violent birth. There's all, you know, I can remember when, um, uh, when my son was born, people would give us cards uh, to say congratulations and some of them were, were funny because they had my son or a baby trying to crawl back into the womb because it's hard out here 
and it was warm and wet and everything you needed was in there. And you've probably seen the same jokes, you know, it's, it's difficult. There's a tearing away from the old to begin the new. You can't begin the new without leaving the old behind. And the old, for all of its problems, we understand, like an old pair of shoes, it just fits. It's okay, I can cope with it. It's also full of testing. You get tested to see if something's changed, don't you? You do a test in school to see whether your head has changed enough so that you, what you didn't know then, you do now know and hopefully will remember after the test. When you go to the doctor to get a test, it's to see what's happened. And you go back for another one after a treatment and it's to see what's changed. And we do it alone. That's what this painting's about. There's no one else there. We're in a wilderness, a lonely, open place where there's not much protection. There's nowhere to kind of hide. And that's the hard thing with any kind of preparation. You can't hide. And we're tempted or tested. Tested is, a, is, a, is the translation that's most likely used but what? Mark doesn't give us very much. He just gives us this sketchy outline. It's a couple of verses tested by Satan. And in Mark and in much of the, the Gospels, there's, uh, and to some degree where he's mentioned he, if, if Satan is a he, in the Old Testament, the best way of, we can understand it, and it comes in lots of different ways, so it's not that clear, and Satan is not necessarily the same person as the devil or the evil one or other names that are given to to a sort of personification of evil. But one easy way of thinking about it is a counterfeit God, an alternative to God, an alternative to the big meaning and purpose of the universe. It looks like the real thing, and if you're not paying attention, you can be fooled by the, by, by the counterfeit. It's a constant problem in goodies. It's a, a still $20 notes. They, for some reason, they're the, the chosen note by counterfeiters, and we get them every now and then in goodies. And so, you'll, and you may see it in the shop if anybody uses cash anymore. Um, you, people are holding them up to the light to see if it's a counterfeit or not. And if it's a really good one, it's hard to tell. But of course, a counterfeit is not worth less than $20, it's not worth anything. That's it. It's, it, it doesn't matter how good it looks. It, it's, it's not real. It's counterfeit. Jesus was tested. Could he tell the real from the fake? Could he tell the real from the counterfeit? And we're tested in the same way all the time. What's real in our lives and what's fake? Sometimes it's hard to tell. Particularly when we've got whole industries designed to tell us that we need and want certain products particularly ones we didn't even know we needed and wanted. I've got a, um, a mobile phone here that I did not need or want 15 years ago because I didn't know such a thing existed. I don't know, 15, you know, a long time ago. I can never remember how long I've... This thing seems to have been in my life forever. I rely on it for everything. It has all kinds of information that used to be here and now is in there. And if I lose it, well, actually, it doesn't so much matter if I lose it because I could get another one and all that information is somewhere on a server somewhere in California or Uzbekistan or someplace and I can download it again and it'll be okay. But I didn't need this and I didn't want it and now I do. We've got whole industries designed to make us think that way. And some of these things are real. Some of 
what this produces for me is real and wonderful and I appreciate it. Lots of it isn't. And I'm finding it difficult to tell the truth from the untruth. And we've had four, four years of the presidency of Donald Trump and the idea that there could be alternative facts. It's very hard, our heads start to hurt when we think about how we figure out what's true and what's not, what's real for us and what isn't. And we live in a consumerist society. We used to live in a materialist society. But a lot has changed in the last 30 years. Materialism is about wanting something that you don't have and believing that when you have it, it will change your life. And for most of material possessions, that's true. If, you have a, if you're old enough to know the time before you could get a washing machine and then you got one, Val's nodding your head, yes. I mean, case closed. Materialism is a good thing. If you didn't have a washing machine and now you do, or if yours breaks down and you have to wait to get it fixed, ah, oh, it's chaos. What if your dishwasher breaks down? I, I just want to move out of home if that happens. It, but we've moved from that into a culture not about getting the thing, but about consuming. That the important thing in your life is not that you have it, but that you're able to get it and you're able to change it and you're able to get a new one and a different one and a different colour and a different shape and a different sort of, I don't know, it just feels better than the old one. Clothes, things, cars, whatever. It's the act of consuming which makes us feel that we're alive. So a lot of people go out to eat, and I do this myself, not because they're hungry or because they don't have any food at home, but because there's something good about, obviously it's good about being with friends or being even with strangers in a, in a place where you don't want to be by yourself, but there's something, uh, kind of feel like you're alive if you're consuming. That's the kind of culture we've moved into. So choosing between what's real and what's not, it's really hard. Lent is supposed to be a time of examining some of these things. Lutherans call Lent a time of serene, earnest attitude, which I've always loved. Uh, I'm neither serene, not usually very earnest, and I'm never quite clear what my attitude is to anything, but I like the idea of being serene and earnest, having a serene and earnest attitude, at least attempting to do it for 40 days. But we don't do it alone. So if you're willing to take the 40-day test, if you're willing to start thinking about things you'd give up for 40 days, you could do it because you don't do it alone. Jesus had angels. We have no idea what that means, except that angels in the Gospels are seen as emissaries of God, seen as like ambassadors sent by God. So in some real way, Jesus experienced the presence of God, an extension, if you like, of God. And he had the memory of just a few days before of being called God's son and being known as the beloved. So on the journey of Lent, you can have the words in Jan's poem. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are. Beloved.